Welcome to another episode of Religionless Church. I'm your Bonhoeffer fanboy and Religionless Church host, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Thomas Ord. Thomas is a theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies. He is known for his contributions to research on love, open and relational theology, science and religion, and the implications of freedom and relationships for transformation. Ord is also an award-winning author. He has written or edited more than 20 books, including his newly released book, God Can't, How to Believe in God and Love After Tragedy, Abuse, and Other Evils. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Jamie Barnes. Jamie is a solo folk artist hailing from Louisville. You can get connected with both Thomas and Jamie and their work in the links in the episode description. In the links in the description, you will also find my website, mesameninga.com, where you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. If religionless church matters to you, there are two ways you can support. First, give the podcast a rating and a review. This not only offers thoughts and evaluations to others considering listening to the podcast, but it also informs me upon what to improve with the podcast. The second way to support is become a patron of my Patreon page. Patreon is a service where supporters financially support creators. With currently three different tiers varying from $1 to $10 a month, you receive respective rewards for supporting my work. Rewards include papers I write, upcoming Religionless Church episode previews, lectures I create, and much more. The links to connect to and support me and my work, including my Patreon page, are all in the episode description. I no longer wish to be your object cause of desire, as I, with my begging rambling, prevent you from your object of desire of this awaiting episode. Therefore, here it is, Religionless Church. Did we miss the moment that never came? Tell me what are we supposed to do? Plunging into the starless flume, oh it can't be true. We'll leave our hearts impressed on the peregrine crest and wait for the daylight Thomas Ord, and Thomas Ord is a theologian, a philosopher, and uh, do you still teach at Northwest Nazarene University in Idaho? Yeah, I still have a uh, sort of affiliation with Northwest Nazarene University. I'm a, a Wesley Research Scholar there. 
Um, are you also possibly a, a partner? Do you have children and all that shenanigans? Yep, I have a wife and three daughters, although all three of my daughters are now out of the house. Are you also a grandpa? You know, I just became a grandfather, uh, I guess I was going to say last month. It's been two months ago now in October, so that's kind of weird. Well, congratulations. Thank you. So you obviously play lots of different roles in the world, um, but I am curious, Thomas J. Ord, who is Thomas Ord to Thomas Ord? That's a good question. Um, I'm a kid who grew up on a farm in a backwards town who still lives in a state that most people have never been to, who um, considers myself someone who um, hasn't been given as many opportunities and privileges, um, but has tried to live a life of love and integrity, uh, given the, the cards I've been dealt. So one thing I've really noticed is process people or process adjacent people that I've interviewed on here always have the most intriguing answers to that question when I ask them who they are to themselves. Really? Huh. How, would, how would most people answer that? I mean, most people answer it by saying that they are, what, what it is that they do in the world. You know, they talk about being maybe a spouse or their jobs or having children. Uh, but it seems like process and process adjacent people seem to they, they think about it more in terms of who they are, what life has given them, you know, sort of like what you were saying about uh, life handing you certain type of cards. And, and so, uh, yeah, that's kind of the way that process and process adjacent people think of things about who they are. Interesting. I'll, I'll look for that as I talk to, <laughs> to folks. You recently wrote a book called God Can't. And uh, by the way, I just need to mention, this is on Rob Bell level of book titles. I mean, th this is sort of on the, the love wins of book titles. I, I mean, you really knocked it out of the park with, with uh, a title called God Can't. Ah, that's quite a compliment. Yeah, that's quite a compliment. So what inspired you to write God Can't? Well, I think fundamentally, I want to help people. And there are a lot of people in the world who are hurting. Uh, some of them hurting more than others. And people who are hurting oftentimes ask big questions about God and why this happened to them and why God didn't stop it and where God is. And, and well, most of the answers people give to those questions are at least unsatisfying to me, unsatisfying to most people I know. Um, and so I wrote this book to help people. I, I wanted to give them an answer I think is stronger. In fact, I think this is a solution to the problem of evil, uh, not merely a, sort of a, a reason why you should still believe in God in spite of the fact that bad things happen. Um, so fundamentally, I'm a person who wants to live a life of love, and that means helping those who need help. And this is one way I do that. What did you learn about yourself when writing God Can't? You know, every time I get ready to write a book, and I've done, written or edited more than 20, I have in mind kind of what I want to do. But in the process, I end up discovering some new insights. In fact, my theology changes. Uh, I have a colleague who likes to say he doesn't know really what he believes until he sits down and tries to write it out. And I'm not quite that extreme, but in the midst of writing things out, 
I oftentimes get new insights and my theology changes some, or I see the import of some of the ideas. And in writing this book, uh, I think one of the insights I got was that um, if, in fact, God's power is such that God just simply can't control us or other aspects of creation, that implies that what you and I do truly matters. It ultimately matters. Our lives are ultimately significant. The usual view, versions of God or views of God, I like to call it the conventional view, says that you know God may give us free will and what we do may have some kind of impact on the world, but when it comes to the afterlife, God can either you know just say all the all the income free and everybody goes to heaven despite what they did or God will send some people to hell for eternity and other people to heaven for eternity, or God will annihilate some people and other people get to go on. And uh, I begin to realize when writing this book that if, in fact, God simply can't control us, then that means that what we do now is significant, and I think what we do in the afterlife is significant. Even God can't unilaterally or single-handedly determine our future. And I think that's a pretty uh, big idea that at least I haven't encountered in, in very many books. With you being in the open and relational theology camp, you immediately throw the fastball right away in your book by questioning God's omnipotence. What is your response to those who claim it is necessary to hold to God being omnipotent to maintain orthodoxy? Yeah, I think that's a very common view, actually. Uh, you know, a lot of people talk about God's power, God being, you know, sovereign or omnipotent or, you know, almighty. Uh, but folks have different views of what that exactly means. And the Bible, which is a book I try to lean on most when I'm thinking about my issues of God, the Bible doesn't give us a clear understanding of what God's power is like. And um, in fact, many people come to the Bible with this preconceived notion that either God has the kind of power that controls everything, or God could at least decide to control something here and there if God wants to do so, even though I don't think the Bible explicitly says that. And um, in this particular book, I make the proposal that God's self-giving and, and uh, others-empowering and therefore uncontrolling love comes first in God's nature, which means that God simply can't be unloving, can't be uh, not self-giving or can't be uh, not others empowering. And um, that's going to be a view that's going to strike some people probably as strange, if not heretical. But uh, I find other people, it, it, it fits their intuitions about God's love and power, even though 
they may not have been able to articulate those intuitions in quite the way I do in this book. The second argument you lay out to respond to evil is questioning God's immutability. In it, you suggest God fully empathizes with our experiences and even is moved by them. What are the ways that God is moved by an experience like the Holocaust? I think God was incredibly sad, frustrated, angry, and deep anguish over the pain that was caused by the Holocaust and lots of other pains in the world, in history, and in our lives today. Um, unfortunately, the more conventional views of God have said that God is unaffected by anything in the world. That they've sort of begun with this notion of perfection that said that a perfect God couldn't change because any change could only be from perfection to something less than perfection. And since God can't be imperfect, well, God can't change. But that means that God, God's experience can't be affected by what we do and what goes on in the world, including horrible things like the Holocaust, but also uh, really positive things. God can't feel good when we uh, love one another. Um, I don't think that view of God fits uh, the biblical vision. It doesn't fit my intuitions and the intuitions of most people. And uh, so in this book, one of the aspects I suggest in terms of solving the problem of evil is to say that uh, God actually feels the pain that we feel, and that's important. In fact, one of the stories I tell is a story about my wife, who uh, early in our marriage, um, she decided to go back to school and become a school teacher. And uh, that meant, you know, taking extra classes. She already had a, a BA, but she went back to get another degree. And, and of course, those preparing for teaching end up um, having to take teacher ed class, or not teacher ed classes. Uh, um, uh, what do you call it when you go to the classroom to, to try it? Yeah, yeah, that's not the word they... There you go. That's the one I'm looking for. Thank you. So she comes home one evening from student teaching, and she is just feeling horrible. She says, you know, the students were just not obedient. They, they weren't good that day. Her, her host teacher wasn't uh, good to her. The principal came in at the wrong time, and she was feeling like a huge failure. And I remember sitting on the kitchen floor in our little uh, rental house, and she's just spilling this in your guts out to me and how horrible things are. And me being an um, inexperienced, naive, and foolish young husband, the first thing I did was begin to formulate all the things she could do the next day to fix it. You know, um, And I remember in that conversation, she blurted out, I don't really want to have answers right now. I just want you to feel what I'm feeling. And I think that for some people, in fact, for most people, they not only want a God who uh, wants to heal and maybe even fix things, but also a God who uh, suffers with them. As Alfred North Whitehead said, a fellow sufferer who understands them. How does God's omnipresence heal? Kind of throughout the book, you talk about how God's presence itself is a healing agent in the world. So how is it that you make that relationship and that connection, that God's omnipresence heals? 
Yeah, I think that God is always working at all times and all places to heal to the greatest extent possible. But God's healing is never unilateral, never by fiat, never single-handed. There's always got to be some creaturely contribution or cooperation or or the conditions of creation have to be right in those circumstances in which there are entities or actors that don't have, you know, real responsiveness. And so in this particular book, I argue for a healing God, but not a God who can just heal single-handedly. And I think that at least helps me because it does seem to to be the case that people are healed, uh, whether or not they're healed through, you know, physicians or something we call a miracle. Um, people really do get better sometimes. And I want to say that God is the, the source of that healing. God's power is the, uh, the source of that healing. But a whole lot of other people are not healed. In fact, I've prayed for tons of people in my life who were not healed. My, my success rate sucks. <laughs> um, and the reasons people give for that lack of healing have always disturbed me. You know, sometimes they've blamed the victim or sometimes they've said, you know, God's got a mysterious plan here and it's really a good thing. And, and none of those things made sense to me. And so if, if you think like I do, that God can't heal single-handedly, uh, but that there must be cooperation at whatever level exist, of existence, either, you know, simple entities or creatures or more complex creatures or just the uh, regularities, law-like regularities of the world have to be in, uh, in, uh, lined up in some way, then all of a sudden you don't have to blame God for failing to prevent, or I should say failing to heal in some circumstances. You can just say, look, God was working to the fullest extent possible, but there are some factors or actors or agencies or uh, conditions of creation that just don't make it possible for God to heal right now. Some of this healing is just going to have to wait until the afterlife. Is there no one left to Rivers gather me like rain I don't mean to accuse, I don't mean to complain I'm too low to the bird for my prayer to be heard anyway In connection to your experience of your wife coming home from student teaching one day, really distraught um, from her experience and and you trying to be an agent of fixing, maybe rather than healing, uh, it reminded me of my experience with a girlfriend I had in college who had depression. And oftentimes I would just sit with her uh, while she had her depression sort of kicking in. Um, and there'd been many times where she would call me very late at night. And uh, because this was a Christian college, I, I couldn't go into her room, but we'd 
go to kind of this commons area and we would just sit and I would hold her and uh, I wouldn't really say anything. I wouldn't try to fix anything. I would just sit and hold her and it seemed like the presence of me just simply holding her was healing. Maybe just in that moment, maybe it didn't have a necessarily long-term effect, but in that moment, it seemed kind of healing. So how do you see the difference between healing and fixing? Yeah, um, I don't know that I've used that language exactly that way, but let me, let me work with your uh, true story a little bit. Um, let's suppose that with your girlfriend who is in these states of depression, Let's suppose you really did have the power to just snap your finger and bring her right out of that depression. Um, I think you would not be a particularly loving boyfriend if you let her suffer in that sort of scenario. If you had the power to fix it unilaterally, to omnipotently heal her in an instant, um, it wouldn't be a loving thing to let her endure this needless suffering. And yet many people, when they look at the problem of evil, they look at suffering and pain and horrors in the world, many of them will say, well, the answer to the problem of evil is that God suffers with us. And then they continue to have the notion in the back of their head that God could just up and fix it single-handedly, but God's choosing instead to suffer with us. And to me, that makes no sense. To me, if God has that kind of power, God ought to use it. God's a, a real uh, sadist if God's uh, standing around just watching people suffer when God could fix it. So it's not enough for me to say God suffers with us. I also want to say God can't fix things or heal unilaterally. In your section on the afterlife, you talk about eschatologically thinking about cooperating with God. So you, you try to kind of uh, do away with these notions of heaven and hell and even annihilation and to think about the eschaton as a cooperation with God. So my question is, how should we engage with those who seem to be in opposition to cooperating with God? You know, there's people like white supremacists and people who are homophobic and et cetera, et cetera. How do we engage with those people who seem to be in direct opposition to cooperating with God? Great question. In my view, being a loving person does not mean just sitting on the sidelines, just passively letting life go by. Being a loving person means being an activist. It means standing up against those who do evil. It means uh, standing in the gap for the oppressed. Now, it means doing it in a nonviolent way. I don't think it makes much sense to kill those people who are uh, trying you know, or doing things that we object to. But there's a, there's a lot of things that can be done between the, the ill of killing them, and the ill of doing nothing. And I think uh, the ways of love and the wisdom of love calls us to seek those uh, actions and expressions of love that can be most effective in opposing the injustice we find in the world. You include many real-life examples in developing your thesis in God Can't, to the point where this is not an simply an abstract theological equation to be solved but a relational reality to be experienced. How has your personal experience and the experiences of those closest to you informed the way you think about theodicy, evil, and the omnis of God? Yeah, let me, let me answer that by saying that uh, my views about God's power and love, the kinds of things I express, at least 
the general things I express in this book, I've had for 20, 25 years. I've been thinking them, maybe not in the you know articulate ways that I try to express in this book, but I've had this general view for quite some time. And about three years ago, I wrote a book called The Uncontrolling Love of God. It was published in an academic press, although I tried really hard to write it in a way that people could understand. And one of the, well, the thing about that book that I feel the best about is that many people read it and many people sent me personal notes talking about how it helped them deal with their own pain, agony, the horrors that they have personally endured. Um, One particular person whose story I mentioned in the book a woman I call Claire, it's actually not her name. I give her a different name for the book to protect her identity. She sent me an email talking about how family members and boyfriend and even a stranger had sexually abused her. And she had been told that uh, God was present with her in the midst of that suffering. And she always thought that it was such a strange thing that if God was present with her and God could have stopped it, that God just decided to stand by and allow these things to happen to her. And, and this particular book, The Uncontrolling Love of God, gave her a different perspective, a, a perspective of a God who couldn't control what happened and therefore uh, wasn't morally responsible for failing to intervene to prevent this. But then I thought to myself, you know, I really need to present these ideas in ways that you know, my mother can understand. (laughs) I need to write a book that's more for the general public. And so I began to do that. Along that way, I also was in a situation personally in which uh, the institution for which I was teaching uh, laid me off in an unjust way. It became a a public uh, kind of phenomenon. And in the midst of that, having this view that God is a God of love who can't control me or others or the situation was a really, really powerful uh, thing, a very helpful thing in my life because I didn't have to walk around, you know, blaming God or thinking maybe God was punishing me or that God was mad at me or, you know, that God had this twisted plan that is somehow loving, even though it sure doesn't look loving from my perspective. I could have a view of God that really made sense of what was happening in my personal life, as well as the lives of many, many other people. So uh, this view that I've held for 20 plus years was especially important to me in recent years in the midst of uh, my own suffering. Today we have Jamie Barnes and Barnes, right? Yep, I, I wanted to make sure I'm saying that right. Uh, sometimes yep. I get some people who have very different last names that I'm not really sure exactly how to say, um, but I think yours is fairly straightforward. Um, but today, Jamie is the person who is the artist in this episode. 
Um, and Jamie, you just briefly mentioned to me just now that you are hoping for a new release coming up soon. Uh, the one of the songs that is in this episode, which is called uh, "Low to the Bird," is was was kind of a single that uh, you released earlier this year, um, and then kind of as a little bit of a teaser for what's to come. So tell us a little bit about what is it that's to come. Uh, well, hopefully more new music. Um, <laughs> it's stuff that I've been working on for a long time. I'm incredibly slow, uh, probably methodical to a fault. Mm. And so it's been it's been a while for me personally that I've released something uh, like a you know, an LP um, that's in this style. Uh, I mean, I've done a lot of other smaller releases over the last few years, but um, it's been a while since I've done something under my own name. Mm. And so, um, you know, it's kind of a reemerging to some degree, a thawing out, if you will. Mm. Um, it's been good, but, uh, you, you know, um, once you've been out of it for a while, you, you struggle with um, a little bit of confidence, a little bit of, do I still know how to do this? Does mm. it care anymore? So there's all those things that I uh, fight internally that uh, mm-hmm. also seem to sort of delay progress. So, Yeah. What, uh, what are some, you've got a shirt right now that's the Velvet Underground, which is, you know, you can't (laughs) ever go wrong with them. What are some music, uh, musicians and bands that have influenced this album in particular, maybe versus other albums? Yeah. Um, gosh, that's always such a hard question because I listen to so much Mm -hmm. and uh, I feel like I, I listen to a lot of stuff. Um, that's not necessarily that you wouldn't. Um, automatically peg with my music because what I do is sort of um, a very slow folk um, contemplative mm-hmm. type thing. Uh, and so early on, you know, as uh, as a youngster developing my own voice, it was guys like Leonard Cohen mm-hmm. or Mark Kozilek of uh, Red House Painters and Sun Kill Moon, you know, guys that that uh, who could just pick up an acoustic guitar and by sheer nature of what they were singing about or the way that they sang it uh, was what captivated me. Um, mm. And so that was the stuff that spoke to me. Um, these days, I find myself listening to more uh, ambient music, mm. drone type stuff, uh, you know, uh, kind of getting back into the, the career of Brian Eno a little bit. Mm. I've always been a huge fan of stuff like Stars of the Lid um, and even like uh, chamber classical stuff. I don't know, stuff that, um, you know, puts out a mood, puts out an atmosphere. And so mm-hmm. I think maybe, and I'm just articulating this for the first time, Mason, that That's maybe okay. it's the idea of atmosphere and mood mm-hmm. that those recordings are influencing my newer stuff because I love the idea of putting on a record that holds the same mood and atmosphere for whatever the length of minute it is mm-hmm. that can fit whatever you're feeling or wanting to feel. And it's not that I don't appreciate um, diverse records like your Sergeant Peppers or whatever, right, right. but it's such a dichotomy from track to track. I really enjoy uh, a full recording having uh, this single thread mm-hmm. of, of mood and atmosphere that carries it through. So I think that's what I'm going for lately. 
You, you know, I was just thinking about that same sort of theme the other day. I was listening to Hospice by The Antlers. I, I don't know if you're familiar with The Antlers or not. I'm not. It's a it's more of a concept album and you know by I think by nature of a being a, a concept album, you know, you have to have these running threads, not only mm-hmm. lyrically but also uh other themes. And I think they really captured a particular tone and I I'm not enough of a good a good enough musician to to really uh articulate what that tone was uh but they were able to capture a certain tone that you can completely hear throughout all i don't know 12 13 11 whatever it is tracks of the album um and and i don't think a lot of people especially those that maybe are are less um that have a less of an ear for music i mean they might enjoy music but have less of an ear for it I don't think they really realize how important that is to an album. Uh, the the tone that you're able to capture, uh, yeah. and and to be able to capture a tone that's still consistent with who you are as an artist, and maybe it has some familiarity with past music that you've created, but yeah. at the same time is novel enough where it's not the same old stuff, right? Uh, yeah. To be able to capture a tone musically is really, really an important part of a, an album. So I appreciate that you're really thinking about that and caring deeply about how you're doing that with the with your future release. Well, yeah, and I think you kind of tapped into w- what I think might be a problem within the current music industry is that we have we have sort of conditioned ourselves to, um, you know, the it's the iPod syndrome of like we can't even make it through two minutes of a pop right. track. We're on to something else and a totally new artist. Um, where the idea of the album is sort of a dying art. This idea of whether it's conceptual or whether it's a mood or whether it's even just gaining people's attention for, gosh, 35, 40 minutes. I mean, what does it take to mm-hmm. <laughs> to get people to to really slow down enough to appreciate that? Because I, I think what what the iPod has done, or maybe what uh, the commercial nature of the record industry has done has trained us to just hop from track to track, artist to artist, without really sinking our teeth in, without diving deep. Right. And uh, I think you know a lot of people will point to a lot of different problems within the record industry. I certainly wouldn't say that I figured it out because I'm I'm a lowly indie artist um, <laughs> who struggles to 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 find interested folks and and. You know, I'm I'm not out of the I'm I'm sort of in this esoteric box, but uh, I think that it has to do with our inability culturally uh, to slow down and appreciate and mm-hmm. to want to um, really let something or to absorb something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think getting back to that um, would be a huge step in repairing the music industry. Yeah. <laughs> You mentioned briefly that you really care a lot about theology and, and that's something that's really important in your life. What theologians or what theologies have been influential in this this last album that you recorded? Yeah, um, well, for those that don't know, I'm actually a former worship pastor. I did oh, okay. that for about 10 years. And so thinking through music and art theologically, um, both for myself and for uh, the sake of leading a large group of people, um, has been on my mind a lot for the last 10 years. And that's uh, really what has kind of delayed this type of music. Um, uh, delay might have some stigma to it. Um, just shifted 
shifted gears because for the last 10 years, my primary focus in writing and creating has been uh, for the church, to the church. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm away from that now for various reasons. And now I'm thinking as a member of part of the church at large of uh, making art to the world again. Um, in terms of what's influencing me theologically, I mean, I could probably run through just the last few books I've read, but um, really the influential guys that I've been reading a lot of lately, uh, Makoto Fujimura, I don't know if you're familiar. I'm not. Artist and theologian and writer, um, Japanese-American, who's just an incredible thinker, especially about what art means to culture. Mm. Uh, his last book, Culture Care, uh, is phenomenal. Um, about the impact and the role of the artist, both uh, from the church and outside of the church. Um, so he's been a, a huge influence. Uh, I got to meet him several years ago, just a fantastic man. Um, I've been uh, Michael Cards, but I know it's a weird name to throw out, Michael Card, uh, for those old school people. Uh, he wrote a book called A Sacred Sorrow, uh, which I just recently reread because of. Um, my own sorrows in my, in my life. Um, and it really connected with me about the idea of, uh, the art of lament Mm -hmm. through art. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this, the, the stuff that's been coming out of me has been very much in, uh, relation and response to, uh, my own journey. And so, uh, it's been very, very encouraging to hear his words about the importance and the lost art of of lament mm-hmm. and that's a great book for that i know that's been out for a while but i highly recommend it um so those are just a few there's a lot a lot more that i can mention uh what was another one i read recently um barbara brown taylor's learning to walk in the dark okay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's one of her latest ones phenomenal book so you can see like this underlying theme right art in depression <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, it make it tends to make really great artists. So sure, sure. Well, I'm. I know. I read on your profile that you're an Enneagram Four. I am too. And so there's that deep four melancholy, you know, yeah. that we, that we share. Mm-hmm. So, are there any like potential tours that you're thinking about with this new album and anything like that in the vein? Yeah, I've been. Uh, I used to play so much and, and do regional tours and some I've played overseas a bit and I've been very much out of it. And so my hopes is that once it's finished and once it's released, that I can do some things. If, if even if it's just regionally here where I am, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky for those uh, that don't know. And so um, there's a lot, you know, Louisville's one of these uh, interesting cities. It has its own, uh, great music scene, great uh, art and culture, but it's also close to a lot of other cities, you know, right. Indianapolis, Cincinnati, Ohio, Nashville, Tennessee. These are all cities that are very, very close by. And when I was playing professionally before I went into the ministry, uh, it was easy to sort of connect all those cities very, um, mm-hmm. like, you know, on a weekend and play three or four shows. Uh, so I'd love to do more of that. Um, it's just, you know, I'm older, I have more responsibility, I'm a dad. And so uh, there's always that, you know, that enters into the equation. So um, it, it might be a little harder for me to do what I used to do, but I certainly would love the chance to bring these songs to, to people in a live setting. 
Well, thank you so much, Jamie. This has been really wonderful. I really have enjoyed listening to to your music, and um, I really hope the best for your release. And uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Mason. I appreciate you uh, taking time to talk with me. Throughout the book, you talk about what God can't, and I imagine you've alluded this throughout our conversation, but what is it that God can? Yeah, I think God can do a ton of things, and I try to list them, some of those in the book. The kinds of things that are listed are the kinds of things that many uh, religious people in general, or Christian people in particular, want to talk about. You know, God redeems, God calls, God saves, God sanctifies, etc., etc., I think God does all those things, however, in, un, in an uncontrolling way. In other words, when God saves, God isn't the only actor involved. When God sanctifies, God's not the only actor. In fact, when God creates, God's not the only actor involved. So all these traditional kinds of ways we think about God's acting in the world, I affirm them. I just say we shouldn't think about those activities involving this controlling aspect of God, God being the only actor in the situation. So I know you're a good Wesleyan, uh, maybe not the best Lutheran, but I do know you're a good Wesleyan. Uh, So I'm curious, how do you see your work relating to Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity? You know, what religion is, is an often discussed uh, issue. You can have a very general and broad view of religion as something that holds us together as the ties that bind us around some ultimate reality. And and in that sense, what I'm proposing is religion. Uh, But I think the more popular sense of religion or the popular view or meaning of the word religion has to do with uh, a bunch of very traditional creeds, a bunch of rules, a bunch of a hierarchy in a particular religious institution or structure or denomination. And the book that I have written here is not something that's going to make people who think in those kind of ways, very happy. (laughs) Uh, I'm presenting a vision of God that I actually think fits very well with the scripture, but it's not the vision of God most people walk around believing. It's, uh, you know, there's a reason why when Hollywood decides to do a movie about God, they call it Bruce Almighty rather than, you know, Bruce All Loving or something like that. Because most people, when they begin with their view of God, they begin with God's power, and not just any view of power, uh, a kind of power that says either God is in control of everything, or God could be in control and sometimes chooses to control to bring about certain outcomes. The vision of God I'm presenting in this book is a God of love, whose love is inherently uncontrolling, a God who's not in control. 
but a God who is leading us, calling us, persuading us, guiding us, even commanding us to live a life of love in the midst of the world we live in. Last question, how can listeners get connected with you and your work? Thanks for asking. I've, I've got a website. Uh, the address is thomasjord.com, which is my full name. That's Ord with two O's. I'm a Dutchman. Um, and they can go to that website and find uh, not only links to the new book, but also a lot of blogs that I've written. And uh, down in the far right corner, there's a little link to sign up for my newsletter. I oftentimes give free items to my newsletter subscribers or let them in on new information. And if they'd like to keep up on what's going on, I, I suggest they check that out. I also think it would be a grave injustice if we didn't mention your Instagram account is amazing. <laughs> well, thank you for that compliment. Yeah, I, I spend a lot of time hiking. I, I spend a lot of time in the outdoors uh, thinking about my life, getting some exercise, doing some praying and, and communing with uh, God in nature. And, and along the way, I take my camera and try to, to make some art. So thanks for the, the nice compliment. Well, Thomas, thank you again for being on the podcast. I, I really appreciated reading God Can't. I think it sort of, in a very accessible way, culminates a lot of the work that you've done in the past. And I also think, just in the broader scope of things, it really matters greatly. I think in the way that Love Wins mattered greatly for, to think of heaven and hell and the afterlife in a different way than what is popularly accepted. I think God can't, and thinking about God in the ways that you do and God can't, um, is a really, really helpful resource for people who do really want to imagine God in a different way than is popularly and traditionally and conventionally accepted. And uh, I, I think you write it in a way, like I said before, in a really accessible way for a wide audience to be able to think about things in a, in a much different way about God. Um, and is worth saying that in making God Can't accessible, I don't think you in any way, shape, or form devalued all the scholarship that you've done in the past that informs God Can't. I really think that you're able to navigate in a way that is able to make this really important scholarship accessible, but at the same time doesn't devalue or uh, kind of undermine the integrity of that scholarship. Yeah, thanks so much, Mason. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Shake the dead things from their holes While the memories drape Like white chemtrails in our souls If that episode left you hanging and you're wanting more from Thomas and Jamie, you can find links to connect to them and their work in the episode description. Again, you can also connect to me through my website, masonmeniga.com. There you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. Also, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, if Religionless Church matters to you, support by giving a rating and review and by becoming a patron of my Patreon page. 
Thank you for listening to Religionless Church. I send you out with this. May the divine bless you with doubt and keep you disrupted. May the divine make the divine's face of infinitude shine upon you and show you graciousness to your own finitude. May the divine lift up the divine's countenance of justice upon you and give you whole unsatisfaction now and forever. So be it. Dream the ridge and the plain With all its shape and color on Drive the penny around Path of totality, God and gravity Lift us on And its shadow found us And its shadow found us Blow a kiss before you